0: For those of you who may not know me, my name's Brett, and normally I'm up here doing the worship, Um, but I also am doing a pastoral residency here at Center Church, and so that means I'm going to be moving into more preaching responsibilities, and so this is my first time preaching at Center Church, and very excited and very grateful for this opportunity. Um, I want to start with prayer. And and as I'm praying, I, I would appreciate it if, if you guys could pray for me as well. Pray that um, God's Spirit would move through His Word, and that um, yeah, that His Spirit would be speaking through uh, just everything this morning. So, um, Father, we uh, we recognize our need for the gospel. We recognize our need. To hear from your word this morning, and so um, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would be present, um, that your Holy Spirit would be speaking through me, and that your Holy Spirit would be uh, opening all of our hearts to to see the beauty of of your word, to see the the beauty of the gospel, um, and that we could we could know you deeper. We could. Uh, love you better and, and that we can believe more in Jesus and all that he has done for us. Um, so we, we give this up to you and, and we ask that our, our worship today and, and um, spending time in your word that this would be pleasing to you, Father. And we, we thank you for the grace that you are always extending to us uh, through your son Jesus. And so we give this up to you in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. So um, if, if you're new here to Center Church or visiting, um, at, at Center Church we like to go through uh, a book at a time, and currently we are in the midst of our Esther series. So I'm just going to give a brief recap on on where we've been. So, um, so, so Esther starts off with this man named King Ahasuerus, and he's kind of a drunken buffoon, and he hosts this really extended party. It's, it's very long. I think it's about like six months. And um, at the end of it, he, he's, he's drunk and he wants to show off his wife to all of his friends, Queen Vashti. So, but she refuses and, and, and the king gets angry and removes her from her position as queen. And then a Jewish woman named Esther... Becomes queen in her place. Now Esther and the Jewish people are are exiled in the land of Persia. That's the setting here, which means that they're they're not in their homeland and they're not experiencing as many of the freedoms as they would if they were in their homeland. So because of this, Esther conceals her Jewish identity. So so the king has no idea that she is a Jewish woman. Um, And then we are introduced to Esther's Cousin Mordecai, and, and Mordecai uh, kind of raised Esther, and he actually is a servant of the king. Um, and then we've got this bad man Haman, who um, he's very arrogant, he's very proud, and um, he he so he he's raised to the position of the king's second hand man or right hand man, whatever the terminology is, and. Um, he, he makes all of the king's servants bow down before him, except for Mordecai refuses to bow down before Haman. So this infuriates Haman, and he, and he hates the Jewish people because of this. So what he does is he convinces King Ahasuerus to write an edict that would enact the genocide of all of the Jewish people in Persia. So, so this is a, a very wicked man. But then even more so... He, he, he hates Mordecai so much that he has this massive gallows built in his backyard so that he can hang Mordecai on, on these gallows. So when um, Esther and, and Mordecai hear of this, uh, that, that Haman's trying to get rid of all the Jewish people, they, they enact a plan where Queen Esther is going to go before King Ahasuerus, go into his presence, and hopefully bring about the restoration of, of the Jewish people. But, but Queen Esther knows that going before the, the king un, uninvited could result in, in her own death. But she does so anyway. She says, if I perish, I perish. She, she goes into the king's presence, and he says, what is your request? And she says, you, me, and Haman, let's have a feast. So they have a feast, and then he says, what is your request? And he says, uh, she says, feast number two. So... That's exactly where we're at now in our chapter this morning. It's Esther 7, and it's the second feast. Um, So I'm just going to read the chapter here. So we'll have it up on the screen there. Otherwise, if you've got your, your phone, Bible app, or if you've got a Bible that you brought with you, you can follow along there as well. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence? In my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So, as I was, uh, when, I t- when I told Elise that I'm going to be preaching in our Esther series, she reminded me of the, the VeggieTale version. Um, have, have, have any of you guys seen the VeggieTale version? Maybe you've watched it with your kids. So, um, she reminded, I forgot this, I'd seen it when I was a kid, but I forgot that Haman is uh, sent to the island of perpetual tickling, which... D- doesn't necessarily sound any better, but um, <laughs> anyways, I'm not preaching the tail version this morning. Um, I'm preaching the real one, and it's, it's messy. It's a messy story, but um, God uses these messy stories to bring uh, necessary truth. And so we're going to unpack that this morning. So again, I already mentioned this is the second feast that Esther has uh, for prepared for Haman and King Ahasuerus, and um, two Sundays ago, Kevin was talking about the the patience that Esther is exercising in all of this. So you know she doesn't just barge into the king's presence and say Haman's a bad man, um, but she but she's exercising patience. She says, "Let's have a feast," and then she says, "Let's have another feast," and and we can see that in our chapter even today because it says it says. Um, as they were drinking wine after the feast. So even still, Esther is exercising patience in all of this because she's waiting until after the feast um, to, to make her request. So, um, but we can also see Esther's cleverness in all of this. So, so the king again asks, what is your request? And, and this is so clever. So this is what she says. She says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. So there was a commentator I was reading uh, by the name of Ian M. Duguid who pointed out that um, King Ahasuerus is not morally concerned with the genocide of the Jewish people. Like He doesn't think of this as a bad thing necessarily because he was the one who wrote the edict in the first place, he agreed to it, um, and and I and I think that Esther knows this, and so she's not trying to um, convince King Ahasuerus that that this genocide's bad, but what she's doing, and this is so clever, she she's saying, um, "Let my life be granted for for m- me for my wish and my people for my request." So so she's she's this is the first time she's coming out as a as a Jewish person before King Ahasuerus. And, and, and what she's saying is, if you lose the Jewish people, you're going to lose me. And this is why she begins her request with, if I have found favor in your sight. So this word for favor is the word for grace. And so what is she doing? She's pleading on, on the grace of King Hazrus. She's not just saying, this is, this is something wrong and you need to care about it. She's saying, if, if I have found favor in your sight, if I have found grace in your sight, then you do not want to lose me. And if you lose the Jewish people, then you lose me. So, so Esther is coming before the king and she's, she's pleading on, on the grace of the king. And it works. It works because we can see that King Ahasuerus response. Because, because we know, I mean, as you read through the story, you know that this is King Ahasuerus' beloved Queen Esther. Um, earlier on, it says that and, and he uses the same word for favor. It says that Queen Esther won grace in, in the sight of the king. So, so, so the king does not want to lose Esther. And so if he loses the Jewish people, he loses her, and he doesn't want that to happen. So I, I want us to pause here for a second because um, there's, there's two pictures of Jesus that, that, I, that I think we can see in this chapter. And, and so this is the first one here. Um, and we actually went into depth uh, last Sunday on this, but um, so Queen Esther is coming before the king, interceding on behalf of her people to bring about their salvation. Again, we just saw that she's pleading on the, on the grace of King Ahasuerus. She, she's serving as the, um, the, mediator, uh, the mediator between her people and the king. And this is a picture of Jesus because this is exactly what Jesus does for us as well. So in, in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So, so what this means is that because of our sin, we are separated from God, that relationship has been severed. And so we need someone to come in and, and serve as that mediator for us. And, and we can see how, so Jesus does that. And he does so by giving himself up. He, he gave himself up so that we can be reconciled back to God, so, so that our, that relationship can be restored. So, so we see how Esther is doing this for her people. She's bringing about the salvation, the restoration of her people by being the mediator with, uh, with her people and the king, and so does so does Jesus for us. But God is 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 a better king than than King Ahasuerus because God is always good, He is always just, and He is always willing to extend grace to those who believe in Jesus. And and Jesus is 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 the better Esther because. Where Esther, where Esther said, if I perish, I perish, Jesus actually did perish. Jesus actually went to the cross and died so that we can be reconciled back to God. So that, that's the first picture that we see. And, and I just want to comment, too, we've been, we've been talking about the providence of God in all of this. Um, so in, in Esther, the, the God's actually not mentioned once. And... We've, we've commented on how um, we can see that even though his name is not mentioned, that God is still orchestrating all of these events. And we, and we can see that in this chapter too. I mean, everything is just falling right into place. Just, just the way that, that, um, that God is orchestrating all these events. And, and, and sometimes that's true of our lives too because, because maybe you're, you're, you're feeling— very void of God's presence in your life. You're not seeing all the ways that He's that He's working and moving. And, and I would encourage you to to just be reminded that sometimes God's working just as much, if not more so, in those moments that you might not be feeling or, or seeing. Um, so just because you're not seeing that, doesn't mean that God's not working because He's He's always at work, and we can see that in in this story here. All right, so. Now, so Queen Esther is, is pleading on the favor, the, the grace of the king. And, and then King Ahasuerus responds in his anger. He says, who is he and where is he and who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And it says, then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So you can just see this picture, right? You know, just, just the, the sheer terror, the, the, the 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 fear that Haman is feeling right now. And then it says, so so the king is angry and he he goes out into the palace garden probably to contemplate, what am I going to do with Haman? And then then Haman falls on his hands and his knees and he's begging for his life before Queen Esther. And there's so much irony in this because um, if you remember, Haman hated the Jewish people because Mordecai, a Jewish man, refused to bow down before him. But now what is Haman doing? He's, he's on his hands and knees pleading for his life before a Jewish woman. And, and so you just see the sheer irony in all of this. Um, so then, so then the, the king returns from the palace garden, and he says, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And it says, As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So now he's being prepared to be executed. And then one of the eunuchs, Harbona, he, he comes over to the king and he says, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai. So, so he's reminding him, he's saying, hey, so Haman has this massive gallows hanging out in his backyard. And he says, and, and, and Mordecai was going to be hanged on it. And he says, Mordecai, whose word saved the king? So if you remember, um, so Mordecai, again, he's one of the servants of the king. And... Early on in the story, he hears about a a plot that these two eunuchs of the king have, where they they want to murder the king, and so so Mordecai tells Esther about this, who tells the king, and then the the plot is thwarted, and you know King Ahasuerus is saved, and Mordecai is the good guy. Um, and then last um, last Sunday we we went through the story where. So, so King Ahasuerus is unable to sleep, and he has the chronicles of the king read to him um, as his nighttime reading, and it's recounted to him the story of Mordecai saving his life. And then he says, have we even honored Mordecai? And they say, well, no, we haven't. And so then that's what he does is he honors Mordecai. So, so the eunuch uh, Harbona here is saying... Um, He's saying, okay, so remember Mordecai, the guy who saved your life, the guy that you just honored. So Haman was going to hang him on this massive gallows. And so then the king says, hang Haman on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then it says the wrath of the king abated. So again, we, we see another twist of irony in this because the, the same gallows that Haman wanted to hang Mordecai on is the same gallows that he's hanged on. So We can see the the arrogance of Haman in all of this. Um, This is the description of, of the gallows that he made. It's said to be 50 cubits high, which, converting to our unit of measurements, is approximately over 50 feet. Just think really, really tall. And you can see how grotesque of a picture that is. I mean, if you're walking by Haman's house and you see Mordecai hanged on this gallows, that's painting a picture of Haman's pure hatred for the Jewish people. I mean, this is disgusting. And and his, and his, his arrogance is just so evident. But then it also says that this was pleasing to Haman. So not only was he trying to make a big statement, but Haman got pleasure out of this. He, he, was, he was happy in, in his sin, in his arrogance, in his pride. But again, that ultimately led to Haman's own demise because we see that he's hanged upon the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And so I want us to... to um, Reflect on this a little bit because I I, I believe that Haman paints a Picture of the reality of our own sin and the reality of the consequences of our sin um, Now I'm assuming the majority of us here um, probably don't struggle with wanting to eradicate an entire people group and and hang a man on a gallows um, and, and, I, and I get that, and I, and I understand, I'm preaching to myself here, how easy it is to read, read about Haman and think, okay, I'm, I'm not as bad as Haman. You know, maybe you think, yeah, I understand that, that I've got my own sins, but at least I'm not as bad as him. Or, or, or maybe you actually think, you know, I'm kind of a good person, and good riddance for Haman, you know, kind of glad we're done with him now in the story. Um, but we need to be reminded of the reality of our sin. And and so Jesus um, when he's preaching the sermon on the mount um, this is what this is what he says He says you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So it's important to recognize that Jesus is not just rewriting Old Testament law here. But what he's doing is he's, is he's correcting a misunderstanding of the Old Testament law, and, he, and he's bringing out its true intent and, and the fulfillment that, that he provides for it. So So essentially what he's saying is just because you haven't murdered someone today doesn't mean that you're free from the sin of murder. Because he's saying even, even if you have anger towards someone, that, that you are under the same exact judgment under God as you would if you would have had murdered that person. Um, the apostle John in 1 John 3.15 says, says this, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has no eternal life abiding in him. So, so John's agreeing with Jesus here, and he's saying, look, your, your hatred is as if you just have murdered that person. So you might think, okay, Haman's like this really grotesque picture of sin, and, and, and thank goodness I'm not that bad. But there's a level playing field here, according to Jesus, according to John, because our anger and our hatred towards others is as if we've just committed murder. And, and I'm preaching to myself here because I find so often that I have anger welling up inside of me. And just like, just like Haman, it's easy to find that pleasing and, and to think, you know what, I deserve this. I mean, this person wronged me or, or this person offended me or, or you know, I, they just don't understand what I'm going through. And so you think, I have a right to be angry right now. I have a right to this. And, and this is the course of sin. Sin always presents itself as pleasing to us. This, this was the case for, for um, the very first humans in the Garden of Eden, for Adam and Eve. Um, so you have Adam and Eve in, in, in the garden. They're in the dwelling place with God. And they have direct access to God. And there's all these beautiful trees. And God says, Eat, eat of the trees except for one, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then there's the serpent who comes in, which is actually Satan, and, and, he's, and he's, uh, he's crafty. And he comes before Adam and Eve, and, and, and he's, he says, okay, I, I know that God said to you that you shouldn't eat of this tree. But is it, I mean, did he really say that? Are you really going to die if you eat of this tree? Because in fact, if you eat of it, you're just going to be like God. And this is, this is what it says about the response of Eve. So it says, when the, when the woman, that's Eve, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So you can see how sin presents itself as something pleasing Eve saw this, and she, and she wanted it. She wanted to eat from this tree that was going to produce death. And that's the reality of our sin as well. We, we experience that because sin is always going to present itself as something pleasing. But the reality of sin is that it ultimately leads to our own demise. I mean, what happened when, when, when Adam and Eve took of the tree? Death and sin came into the world, and they were severed, from God. They were, they were separated. They were exiled out of the Garden of Eden. And that relationship was destroyed. You see this with Haman. Haman's own sin and his pride and his arrogance leads him to be hanged on the, the, the very gallows that, that pleased him, the, the thing that he wanted to hang Mordecai on. And you can see that in your own life how, how sin is just presenting itself as pleasing, but it ultimately will lead to your own demise. But we can see a picture of Jesus and Haman. Um, so we don't normally talk about words here, but I, I think this is really important. So in the chapter, um, there's this word that's being used over and over again: gallows. And um, in Hebrew, it's actually the, the word tree. It's eight. Um, so it's it's the same word that's used tree throughout Old Testament. So, so literally, Haman was hanged on a tree. And according to the Old Testament, in, in Deuteronomy, someone who is hanged on a tree is considered cursed by God. So, so we get this picture of, of Haman who, because of his sin, is a man who is cursed by God because he's literally he's hanged on a tree. But um, Paul quotes this passage, quotes this Old Testament law in his letter to the Galatians, and and he relates it to Christ. And this is what he says. So, So he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, and then he quotes that passage, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So we can see how um, what, what, what Paul is saying here is that the, the, the law curses us because of our inability to keep the law. Because, because our sin, even if you commit one sin against the law, you, you're, just con- you're condemned. You're cursed by it. And so because of our sin, the law is a curse to us. Because of our inability to keep it. And, and so what does Jesus do? Jesus Jesus redeems us from that curse by becoming a curse for us. And then he quotes that passage. He says, because cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The apostle Peter writes this. It says, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So, in the Greek language, there's a perfectly fine word to use for cross. Um, and yet, Paul and Peter specifically don't do that. They use the Greek word xulon for tree. Because what they're doing is they're trying to get you to think back to this Old Testament law because, because being hanged on a tree is a shameful way to die. And according to the law, you are cursed if, that, if that's your fate. And we see that with Haman. Haman is this picture of a man cursed by God because in his sin, he's hanged on a tree. And yet, we also see how Jesus comes and he takes us from that curse because he was hanged on a tree. Do you see that? So so I don't know what sins you're dealing with. I don't know what you're... Maybe you're feeling the the weight of... Of sin right now. Maybe you're feeling that curse. Maybe you're feeling that separation from God. And you need to be reminded this morning that Christ took that curse for you. Yes, we see this picture of where we are headed if we remain in our sin, but we also see a picture of Jesus who takes that from us so that we do not have to suffer that same fate. And so, I, okay, so, so you got to remember this. So, Jesus, when he went to the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not Jesus just being poetic. That's not Jesus just using flowerly language to, to express his, his sorrow, his grief. Jesus actually experienced separation from God. Jesus actually experienced separation from the Father when he went to the cross. Why? So that you could be reconciled back into your relationship with God. You, you also see how before Jesus goes to the cross, he says, he says, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will. What is the cup? The cup is an Old Testament image of the wrath of God. What is Jesus saying? He's, he's going to drink the wrath of God. He's going to drink the punishment of, of, of sin. And, and so he endured that when he went to the cross. He, he became that curse why? So that you could be redeemed from that curse. You could be saved from that punishment. And, and so I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. Maybe, maybe you're just trying really hard to be a good person and, and, and you just keep fumbling over and over again. And I would just encourage you that to, to just consistently look back to Jesus. Just be reminded of this because this is what we do every morning when we, when we gather at Center Church. We're not just telling you, okay, now here's the five steps that you need to be a better Christian, to be a better husband, to be a better coworker, fill in the blank, um, to have better spiritual life. What we're doing is we're reminding you that, that Jesus has done this for you because we, we, we confidently believe that that's where the change happens. I mean, if, if we go back to the first Peter passage, uh, um, what, what does it say? It says... Um, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, if you're trying to live a good life, how do you do that? Well, according to Peter, you don't do anything because it's Jesus who, who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So you're, you're passive in all of this. You don't, you don't do anything. What you do is you believe in the one who has done everything. And so this is what we do every Sunday and, and, and so now, um, so we do what's called gospel application. And essentially what this is, is again, it's, it's not giving you a list of, of, of here's your to-dos for the week. Um, that doesn't mean we're allergic to commands in the Bible, but we recognize that the only way you can ever be obedient to God or, 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 or follow these commands is not by anything within yourself, but by believing in Jesus and what he has done for you. So we are reminding you of that each Sunday. And so um, our gospel application for this morning, I've got two points, and uh, we've already explained them, so we don't need to go much in depth on them, but the first one is Jesus is our mediator. Jesus intercedes on our behalf um, so that we can be reconciled back into that relationship with God. And, and Jesus became a curse. Jesus took on the punishment of our sin so that we can be, we can be redeemed, we can be restored from that curse.